Good evening and welcome again. We are glad you're here tonight. Dan, you threw me a curve. I expected two songs. And so, you know what they say about getting in a routine, and I guess I was in the routine of having two songs, maybe three. Don't we do three songs on Sunday night? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. Okay. Well, nonetheless, do what? I got you. Well, duly noted. We appreciate so much you being here tonight. Thank you for being here. If you're visiting, we encourage you to come back. We're grateful for you being here tonight. We're always grateful to have visitors with us. If you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you come and be a part of the church here. We are very grateful for those who have joined hands with us, and we hope and pray that the coming year is going to be a great year. It began with a good day, and we're glad that Brian and Lana are back with us, and we love and appreciate them so much. And we are so thankful that they are back, and we look forward to working with them and encouraging them throughout this new year. We're looking tonight, we're going to begin, as we noted prior to the beginning of the new year, we're going to be looking over the course of the next year at key chapters in Scripture. Tonight, we take a look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The word Genesis, of course, means origin or beginning, and this is the beginning as we know it. Somewhat noteworthy that the book of Genesis begins with an introduction to life and ends in death. And so we'll look at chapter 50 a little bit later in our study in the coming weeks, but tonight we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 really lay the framework or the foundation for everything. We talk about our origin. Where did we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we headed? Well, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are introduced to our origin, the beginning point. And you think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is a factual statement. Now, there are a lot of people in the world today with the wave of a hand would dismiss Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you well know that there are many, many people in our world today, they have, brought, they have bought in to the propaganda that we are the products of evolution or some type of big bang. Well, the bottom line is, that is not even logical. It is certainly not biblical. And so, as we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are introduced first to the Creator, secondly to creation. So I want to begin tonight by talking first and foremost about the power of creation. There's some things that are contained in chapters 1 and 2 that I think are utterly amazing. And so as we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tonight together, listen again as we note, what Moses records some 3,500 years ago. In the beginning, God. The beginning, of course, would have reference to time. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Word, the one that we acknowledge as the Son, the Holy Spirit, three members of the divine Godhead, not bound by time. They are eternal in their existence. 
having no beginning point, nor do they have any ending point. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Moses said, in the beginning, God. The word for God here, Elohim, is in the plural. And really there is a designation here of the Godhead. In chapter 1, we are introduced to this very concept, aren't we? For example, down in verse, note if you would in verse 2. The Bible says that the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then listen to this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. I believe the Spirit of God here to be the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, listen again as Moses describes the Creator of man. God said, let us, plural. Who would the us be referenced by Moses in Genesis 1, verse 26? Well, again, it would be the Godhead. I have often thought about the Godhead and their uniqueness in the creation of man. And really, you can look at the creative act of God and then the redemptive work of God. God the Father was the architect. The Word, the second member of the Godhead, the Christ, was the agent by which the world was made. For example, you remember in Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, all things were created by Him. In Genesis chapter, well, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By Him were all things created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or powers or dominions, principalities, all things were made by Him, and He is before all things. So the Lord Jesus Christ was the agent by which the world was made. And then, of course, in John chapter 1, you remember John introducing us to the Word, so that all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 10, said, And you, O Lord, in the beginning have laid the foundations of the earth. He's talking about the second member of the Godhead there. So, you have God the Father, the architect, the Word, the second member of the Godhead, the Christ, who is the agent by which the world was made, and then the Holy Spirit, who was the beautifier, the one who brought organization to this unorganized mass of material created by God. Now, the redemptive plan, same idea. God the Father, the architect, Christ was the agent by which that redemptive plan was executed, and then the Holy Spirit being the revealer of that divine plan. All right, so look again at Genesis chapter 1. In verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, that would have reference to time. God, that would be the force behind this creative power. God created, that would be action. The heavens, that would be space. And the earth, matter. Now here's what's incredibly interesting. You and I, when we make things in this world, let's just say we're going to make a house. 
We have to assemble the materials for the production of that house or building, don't we? God, however, made something from nothing. Matter is not eternal, as some people suggest. But rather, God spoke this world into existence, didn't He? You remember the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3? The Hebrew writer said, By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God, so that the things which appear were not made by those things which are visible. God made something out of nothing. That is, He made the world. And so in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, we have a reference to all the material elements in the universe in their unorganized state. Now, we talk about the sphere of the earth. The Holy Spirit would have given shape and organization to that which had been created. So note if you would, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then in verse 3, we're introduced to the fact that God is the one who spoke light into existence. We'll talk just in a moment or two about the days of creation. One of the thought, you remember in Psalm 33, David in the long ago said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them. In verse 9 he said, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So then you start looking at the days of creation and listen to what Moses said beginning with day one. Day one would have encompassed the heavens and the earth and light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now there are some that will tell you that between chapter well, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, there is this gap or eons of time between the initial formulation of the heavens and the earth and the world as we know it now. But I want you to look at a passage of Scripture that I think is a commentary on the fact that God created the heavens and the earth, mankind, in six literal days. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, you remember God said to remember the Sabbath day and they were to keep it holy. And God said, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day, however, He said, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. He said, in it you shall not work. Now listen to Him. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the stranger within your gate. Then listen to this in about verse 11. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is, all that is in them. You mean to tell me that God created the world, the universe as we know it in six 24-hour Periods of time. That's exactly right. Is that what the Bible teaches? Yes, it does. If God had the power, the ability, to speak this world into existence, and He did, 
then he didn't need time to bring forth creation over eons of time, did he? Rather, he had the power to do it immediately. What about the days of creation? Well, in day one, as I said a moment ago, God created the heavens, the earth, and light. Day two, of course, the creation of the firmament, or the expanse. Day three, according to chapter one, would have encompassed dry land and vegetation, or the world of botany, as we know it. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, wait a minute. In Genesis chapter one, verse three, God said, let there be light. The light spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and the Bible doesn't really amplify with regard to what type of light it was. But it was not the sun, moon, and stars because they weren't created until day 4. So when we look up into the heavens and see that canopy of stars and the sun, God arranged that on day 4. And then day 5. We're introduced to marine life, the fowl of, of the air, the birds. And then day six. Day six, God made the beast, cattle. And then listen to this. God not only made the beast of the field and the cattle, but he made man. There's a distinction made between mankind and the animal world. So look with me, if you would, in verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he both male and female. Now you remember in chapter 2, verse 7, God said that he made man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a record of God saying with regard to Adam, the first man, it's not good for man to be alone recognizing that the animal kingdom would not be a sufficient complement to man. So the Bible says he made a woman, didn't he? God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. In that deepened sleep, the Bible says that God extracted a rib. And from that rib, he made the woman and brought her unto the man. Adam then said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. I want to just talk for a minute or two about verse 26. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. There's a connection between the word make and create. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word created here carries with it the idea of God's sovereignty, His creative power. God had the ability to create the world, the universe, as well as mankind, didn't He? 
But Moses said that God, in the initial phase of creation, said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So let me ask this question. How then are we made in the image and likeness of God? You ever thought about that? God, of course, is a spirit being, doesn't possess flesh and bones as we do. Remember John verse 24, chapter 4, God is spirit. So we're talking about a spirit being. So we're not like God in the sense that we are a spirit being. But the Bible says we've been made in His image and likeness. So how so? Let me just offer these thoughts. Number one, I would suggest that we are made in the image of God because He has endowed us with the ability to make choices in life. That's plainly set forth in chapter 2, isn't it? When God placed man in the Garden of Eden, told him that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. God did not create us as robots, did He? But rather He has endowed within us what we call volition, the ability to make choices in life. For example, you remember in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua said in the long ago, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Or Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, when on behalf of God he said, in the long ago, I said before you, life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. We have the innate ability to make choices in this life, do we not? It's a wonderful thing. Now here's something to consider. God in His infinite wisdom, in the endowment of human volition, recognized that before He ever created us, there would be the possibility of man making sinful choices, wrong choices. As a result of that, bringing sin into the world. And yet despite that, God still created man, didn't He? God created or formulated a plan that plan was in place before the foundation of the world, based on what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. Or, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that Christ was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times. So God had a plan in place to redeem the human family. God wasn't caught off guard by the fact that Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation, thereby introducing or bringing sin into the world. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what do you have? The fall of man and the beginning of the unveiling or unfolding of God's redemptive plan, the promised seed. So in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul would say that the Christ at the appropriate time was born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So first and foremost, we are, we are made in the image of God in the sense that we have the ability to make choices in life. There's a second thought. 
And that is, we are beings of intellect, aren't we? God has given each of us intellectual capacity. In other words, we can take knowledge, the knowledge that we possess or the knowledge that is developed, we can build upon that, can't we? We have the ability to use our brain. I heard just the other day an individual with a very analytical mind talking about the human brain. You ever thought about the human brain and how complex it is? You know, David said in Psalm 139, verse 14, that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. One writer said in the long ago, the human brain, the capacity of the human brain would be the equivalent of a library housing 20 million volume books. Utterly amazing, isn't it? How'd that happen? By chance? You know, you, you talk about the human body, and we're talking about intellect. God has endowed us with intellect. We have the ability to reason, don't we? For example, you remember in Isaiah chapter 1 when Isaiah said, Come, let us reason together. We are logical beings. We have that ability. good example of that would be in Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul on Mars Hill passed by, saw an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. He said, whom you ignorantly worship. And then what did he do? He began in a very logical way to talk to them about the nature of the one true living God. That it is God. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being. He is the giver of all life, breath, and all things. So we are logical beings. We have intellect. Granted, it's up to us whether or not we tap into that intellect. There's another thought. That is, as human beings made in the image and the likeness of God, we have an appreciation for what one writer would call the aesthetic. In other words, unlike the animal kingdom, we have the ability to show appreciation for certain things. For example, the beauty of the world. The fall of the year when the leaves begin to turn and the splendor and the color of those leaves. In the fall of the year when everything emerges and comes to life, and begins to blossom and show the beauty of God's handiwork. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when God surveyed His creation? Do you remember what was said? God surveyed everything that He had made, and the Bible says His response was, it is very good. Suggesting that God, like us, manifesting an appreciation for the aesthetic, do we not have an appreciation for literature and poetry and art and music? How did all that come about? Because we have been made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. Let me suggest another thought. And that is, we have been made in the image and the likeness of God from the vantage point we are moral beings. There is a sense of right and wrong housed within us. You know, the Bible talks about the conscience. 
In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about the Gentile world. They didn't have a codified law as did the Israelite nation. And yet, Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and about verse 15 that their conscience would accuse or excuse their behavior. Are there not certain things housed within us? For example, sharing or caring for other people. Demonstrating certain courtesies in life. Now I understand the conscience has to be safely guided and the only safe guide to the conscience is God's Word. But there is housed within us what some would say a moral oughtness and ought not. Where'd that come from? You know, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the conscience being seared with a hot iron. There are some people that at one point in time, they had a conscience that was tender. But over the course of time, that conscience, according to Paul, became seared, deadened. But you can guarantee at one point in time they had it. There's a final thought here. That is, we are made in the image and the likeness of God from the vantage point. There is within us what I would call, what some would call, an eternal longing. We understand there's something more than just the physical world in which we live, don't we? Didn't Solomon, didn't he draw those conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes? For example, Solomon, as you know, talked about the various things that he had acquired in life. A man of immense power and popularity. Solomon talked about his wealth, his possessions, and his pleasures. And he had all these things. He accumulated things far and wide. And yet Solomon said, the thrust of life It's not power, and it's not pleasure, and it's not material possessions, but rather it's fearing God and keeping His commandments. Matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, when he narrates the aging process, he talks about man going to his long-awaited home. You remember he talks about at death, the body returns to the dust from which it was taken, but the spirit returns to whom? To God. And by the way, we talk about being made in the image and the likeness of God. It is true, we have been made from the dust of the earth. Man has. And yet, housed within this temporal tabernacle of clay, this human body is an eternal spirit. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, God is the Father of that spirit. And that spirit or soul housed within us will live forever, won't it? So there's this longing for something better. I said a minute ago that the Bible answers the basic, fundamental, philosophical questions. Where did we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we going? Now, let me just shift gears for a minute and ask this question. I want to maybe talk for a minute or two about the purpose of creation. 
As you think about the purpose of creation, let me ask you, have you ever just sat down and turned over in your mind, why am I here? Why did God create me? Why did God create the human family? Understanding that God is self-existent. Not just self-existent, but He is self-sufficient. God needs no one, nor does He need anything. Do you remember in Psalm 50, the psalmist said on behalf of God many, many years ago, God said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. God said, the world is mine and all things, there, everything belongs to God, doesn't it? So why did He create us? In Psalm 8, I think David wrote Psalm 8. And David in the long ago, David had the opportunity to spend a lot of time outdoors, didn't he? And David could sit back and reflect upon the glory and majesty of God. David wrote Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. So here's David, that shepherd boy. And David said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you've ordained, listen to this. What is man that you're mindful of him? When I, when I step back, David's saying, and I contemplate the beauty of this universe that we live in, and I look up in the heavens and I see the stars and the moon and the sun, and I think about the majesty of your creation, I'm left in awe. And the question that comes to my mind is this, why are you, why are you mindful of me? Why have you gone to such lengths to provide care for me. It's a marvelous thought, isn't it? So why did God create us? I'm not sure that I can fully, adequately answer that question. I had a professor many years ago, Rex Turner, senior, and he was an incredible, extraordinary individual probably one of the best scholars of the English Bible I've ever known. Brother Turner, in his book, Systematic Theology, talked about the creation and why God created man. One of the things he talked about had to do with the fellowship that God has extended to, to His creation. And he compared it to a couple, a young couple, that decides to have children. Understanding the positives and the negatives, but the intent to bring something or to bring someone into the world with whom we can enjoy fellowship, and love and warmth and all the other things that go along with that. I have no doubt God is a social being. Everything that God has done, everything that God does is motivated by one thing. That is His love, isn't it? 
You know, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says God is love. So the catalyst behind everything He does is tied to His unique nature, His nature of love. But again, going back to what David asked, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why, God? Let me ask you, if you would, to turn with me for a minute to the book of Isaiah. And look at Isaiah chapter 43 for a minute. I guess if someone were to ask me for one verse that would sum up the purpose behind God creating us, this would be it. Look at verse 7. Isaiah said, Everyone who is called by name, who is called by my name, whom I have created, here it is, for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. God here saying, let me tell you why I created you. I created you to bring honor and glory to me. You remember in Revelation chapter 4, John wrote about the Lord. And he said, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things. God is the one who has created all things, hasn't he? And by his will, all things exist and were created. So we have been created to bring honor and glory to God. Now, I want you to think about this. The Bible says that when we are redeemed in Christ by his blood, that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2, verse 10. And the idea is that we are His workmanship or His masterpiece. That's the idea. We are God's masterpiece set on display. So you think about it, as a child of God, we've been created for the purpose of engaging in works that do what? Bring Him honor and glory. So then you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and listen to what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. So really the question of the hour is this. Are you glorifying God? Do you live, do you exist to bring Him glory in this world today? I would hope and pray so. Listen, we haven't even touched the hem of the garment when you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There is so much more. I would encourage you, dig deeply, study, and meditate on these truths. And listen, I encourage you to research and to study and to think about why God created us. Dig deep. I've given you some verses. These are no, by no means exhaustive. 
but rather are a beginning point. I said a minute ago at the onset of our study, the Bible, in a very forthright way, identifies the one from whom we came into existence, our origin. The Bible identifies what we're doing here, what our purpose is. As Solomon said, fear God, keep His commands. And the Bible also tells us where we're going. We're going to an eternal home one day. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, to understand that before God ever created the heavens and the earth, He had a plan in place to redeem the crown of His creation. You know, we talk about everything God's created. The crown of His creation is the human family. God has lavished upon us so many blessings, one of which is His redemptive plan. So if you're here tonight and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you'd be willing to turn from a life of sin, confess His name, be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away. God will put you in the church. The church is the house of the saved, Ephesians 5.23. If you're here tonight and you're not what you ought to be, you need the prayers of the church. Could we encourage you to come? We're here to pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon. Can we stand and sing?